Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a miracle made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made, come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Fake the Nation, episode 398. Hello, hello. This is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and where we revel in a marvelous extra day of February. The show is being released on Leap Day, which makes us all wonder if it'll ever have been released at all. I don't know what happens on Leap Day. Is it Do things just get sucked into the void? Today, we're going to talk about weighing yourself before getting on a flight. That's something that makes us all so comfortable. We'll also talk about whether you can make honest criticism publicly and it looks like standardized tests are back at least in some cases should they be and finally we're gonna do a deep dive on bravery what it is what it takes and why we're not all doing it today i have a marvelous panel and i know that like by now you have probably figured out listeners that a lot of these people are my friends well these two people are like really my friends and so if it feels at some point we're just like descending into like brunch chatter that's just what happens when you have like actual friends on a mic um first up we have you've heard her on the show very many times she was a fan favorite during the succession bonus pods um she's an artist a filmmaker uh her work has been exhibited in countries not in the u.s because she has international reach it is the one and only <laughs> danielle derschlag hey, hey danielle 
Oh, Nikita, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, so happy to have you. And we are also joined by another friend of mine. And I, I honestly, I feel like I met both of you around the same time. Um, but you don't know each other. So this is like the triangle is being complete right now. Um, you, this, ne- this next guest is a New York Times bestselling author because she's just that fancy. She's also director of the writing and storytelling program at Stanford School of Medicine. Uh, she is... Uh, just I've seen her speak I've seen her teach I've seen her just really wow audience and I know she will wow you too it is the one and only Dr. Laurel Brightman hey Laurel hi thank you so much for having me oh my god so happy to have you here and I just want to remind listeners that if you want to support the show you can do that oh so easily by going to patreon.com slash Farsad for as little as four dollars a month you get bonus episodes of the show and there's tears after that with that involve t-shirts and mugs and I don't know what um, and then even for as little as one dollar a month you could support the show and, and get nothing except for the knowledge that you support the show uh, <laughs> so don't forget to go to patreon.com slash Farsad if you've been flirting with the idea and you just keep forgetting to do it now the chance to just hit pause real quick go to that website it's very easy um and again four dollars is the cost of one of your coffees so you do you it's like you're buying a coffee for your favorite podcast all right let's get into it with topic number one In a recent interview with Tina Fey by Bowen Yang on his podcast, she recommended to him that he stop being critical of movies or shows publicly, basically pointing out that you never know if that director wants to reach out and hire you and what that means for your future relationships. Now, her claim is that fame necessitates zipping your lip. But my question is, does it? And I think this might apply to success in any field, right? We're all sort of like in different adjacent fields, the three of us. Um, And I wonder if you ever sort of stop yourselves before saying something in a kind of public fashion because you're worried that honest criticism um, could bite you in the ass. Well, as a Midwest, as a Midwesterner, we do that anyway. Um, <laughs> that's just what happens in the middle of the country. Right. Um, but you know, when I was, I heard Tina Fey's um, advice, and on the on the podcast, I love Las Culturistas. But you know, what really strikes me is like I think she's pointing out a really interesting tension in contemporary celebrity culture, which is that now to be well known in your field, you're expected to give your opinions about everything. Yeah. You know, no one asked Rita Hayworth her thoughts about Middle East politics, I promise you, (laughs) right? But we now crave a level of knowledge of the people we admire. And it's not just major celebrities. It's your favorite journalist, right? It's um, an author who you really enjoy. We want to know what they think about everything. A girlfriend of mine recently said to me, when did we all become senators? (laughs) Yes. When were we all suddenly legally required to give our public opinion about everything? And I do think it can be dangerous. um, But I also think if you don't play at all in that space, you're going to have a smaller following because people want to know what you think about a large set of matters. Um, It's a tension right now in in how we define success. Senator Brightman, your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) 
mean, I really feel, you know, it's one of those things. All you want is for someone to care what you think and then they start caring and then it's very terrifying. Right. Um, you know, Correct. I, I totally agree. And I feel like who am I to opine on matters of which I, I do not know. At the same time, I totally agree. You know, I, I feel like what's weird now is like, I don't really care what Bed Bath & Beyond thinks. Right. Like, right, I think, right, right. it's not even individuals that we only care about now. It's like we want to know anthropology's take on the Middle East, you know? Right, right, um, right. And so I, I, I do feel, though, like I, I want to live in a world in which people aren't scared to share their opinions. Um, you know, I, I, and also that's such a delicate line to walk without hurting anyone. And making other people feel unsafe. And we live in a world in which currently the opinions are very, very shrill. Um, So if you consider yourself moderate, even keeled, curious, I think it's even more important that you kind of wade into the fray and maybe don't share an opinion, but but ask questions. You know, it's funny, like you you mentioned Las Culturistas, like I have a podcast. I'm not a famous person, but like I have enough, you know, whatever in the world that like this if I say something, I guess it could bite me in the ass later on. There's, you know, podcasts like those smartless guys have that podcast, um, Jason Bateman and and Will Arnett and uh, Sean Hayes. And then there's like the Dax Shepard. So there are celebrities with podcasts. And, and, and I have to be honest, I'm not a completist on any of those. So I don't know. Do they sit around not giving opinions about like, you know what I mean? It seems like, what are you even going to say if you're not going to give opinions? I mean, I, 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 but I also understand that they're probably like walking a fine line, right? Because they also work. They need, if they can't just be like, I thought Oppenheimer was a piece of shit. By the way, I did not think that uh, for the Christopher Nolans out there who subscribe to this podcast. But but like, I'm sure they are not saying that because they do want Christopher Nolan to hire them on their next, you know, movie. So it just, I, I think it's a weird conundrum. We want everyone's opinion, but we also want to punish people for having opinions. Correct. And <laughs> there's no way to win. There's no way to win. There's no way to win. I think, and it's funny, there's like, whatever, how many hundreds of hours of me with fucking opinions, right, on this goddamn show. Um <laughs> And, and, you know, who knows what I do in my future? Maybe I do something in the political sphere, you know, maybe whatever. Like, maybe I go into <laughs> accounting. It's always been a dream of mine. Um, and so <laughs> wh- I, wh- I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know that there's plenty of material um, to, to, with which to punish me. And I guess I just go for I would say to Bowen Yang, you know what? Say what? I mean, there's too many things. You're already, pun- it's the punish has happened. It's too late. Just keep. Yeah. Yeah. And, in, 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 you know, if you don't like a movie, hey, that's okay. That, I mean, I don't think, like, is Christopher Nolan so thin-skinned that he can't handle a two-bit podcaster having an, an opinion? I mean, I don't. I don't think so, right? I mean, I hope not because I did think Oppenheimer was a piece of shit. So <laughs> that was Danielle Dershlag for the record, me. in case that's people me. do not recognize the difference in the voice. Phil I Mayer, want that Danielle job. Laurel and Nagin still hireable. Still, still hireable. hireable. <laughs> right. 
So I've destroyed myself just now. Uh, but, but you know, I, I agree. First of all, I think Bo and Yang, whatever ha- would happen already probably has happened, right? Because he's been yes. exposed in his opinions for a long time. Yes. But also, quite frankly, I don't think, especially a person of his generation, can get away with not doing it. Yes! Because authenticity, whatever that means, right, is the brand, the preferred brand right now for public-facing people. Yes. So if, if you zip your lip, you're not in the conversation. I, I almost think Tina Fey got famous a little early enough that she doesn't have to give her opinion on everything because it's just already built into her thing. Like, she just gets to be talented. Yeah. <laughs> Laurel, what were you going to say? I Just that I think, what's the worst thing that can happen if you only work with people you respect? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I also... Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, like, my God. The dystopian future you've just created. <laughs> imagine. Imagine. I mean, is it so bad to shrink the field to people whose work you really only admire? I mean, maybe you are closing some doors, but also that leaves some open for the people to walk through who who you haven't criticized on your podcast. <laughs> you well, know, I, I don't think I, that's so bad. I, I'm going to leave it on that note. That is an incredible question for us all to ask ourselves. Um, all right, let us move on to something I think slightly more terrifying. Finnair, which is the Finnish airline, is offering the option of being weighed in before you board your flight because it claims it'll enable it to better estimate the weight of a plane's cargo before takeoff. Sorry, I'm like stuttering as I read this because there's like a flurry of emotions going through my (laughs) mind. (laughs) Um, what What did you think just as I read it? Were you stuttering in your own minds? I couldn't believe flying could get worse. I mean, I, I truly, and then I was like, okay, well, cool. This must come with like a bonus 25,000 kilometers or something on your, on your right. frequent flyer right. account. And it didn't, it came with a free bag tag, which you probably <laughs> still have to pay to check your damn bag. You know, I was just like, this couldn't, couldn't get worse. I just, I can't believe it keeps getting worse. Well, I had exactly the same response. But Laurel, can we agree? Bag tags are already free. (laughs) (laughs) I believe this one was silver and cool in some way. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. But uh, so so I I think it's... um, you know, basically equivalent to terrorism. I can't believe it. I, I, I'm, it's it's so not okay with me. What really fascinated me, though, reading about it, is that right away, 600 people signed up to be weighed. Yeah. Why? Wait, like, so you're, you're not, I guess, okay, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say one thing, which is I didn't for, I guess, my whole life really take into consideration that the weight of a plane has something to do with whether or not it falls out of the fucking sky. You know, like I never thought about that until reading this article. And then I was like, I think we should all be weighed. I mean, I did have a moment of like, this is mortifying to my soul. Take me back to middle school. Fucking take the calibers and and grab the fat of my arm in front of everybody. Why don't you? Right. That is the feeling I had. 100 percent. But I also was but I was also like. But, like, if it means planes not falling out of the sky, that's kind of a nice Benny. Nikki, have you witnessed a lot of planes that have fallen due to excessive chubbiness? I mean, I don't think it exists. And the reason why is because these airlines every five years take a kind of collective average of human weights. And that works, 
right? So like, that's why they don't fall out of the sky. For me, you know, it's really interesting. Like some people weigh themselves daily or weekly or whatever. I basically don't know that number unless I have a medical issue. <laughs> right, right. Because I just feel like as a woman trained to dislike our bodies by this culture and society, like, why do I need that information? Um, yeah. The idea that on a stressful flying day, I, I want that number in my head, it may, absolutely not. No way. I, I, will t- I will say this. I have yes. to weigh myself all the time to fly. And what? because my, my husband runs a salmon cannery in rural Alaska and we're off the road system and to get to and from the cannery, we have to go in these tiny, tiny planes. And very often they need to know your weight and the weight of all your bags and the groceries you're flying in with to be able to figure out how to evenly balance the plane. So it's less about like the plane being overweight and more about making sure that one side isn't heavier than the other and there's enough weight room for fuel and everything. And I'm telling you, the way to do it is not to do it by person. It's really not stressful because they load you and all your groceries and your stuff on the scale and they, next to the check-in counter all at the exact same time. And so nice. I never So you could be much better. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could like, be like, it's, it? it's, that, it's that can of ragu. It's not me. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to eat all the things on it right. with me, right? <laughs> but I don't weigh I mean, that yet. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's the 10-pound bag of Costco quinoa um, that's really right. throwing this shit off. You know what I mean? So hold on. So they literally, it's a scale that's like large enough that you stand there with all of your groceries? Yes, often. Or sometimes they'll like weigh you and your carry-on and then they'll weigh all of your check stuff um, separately. But you're almost never weighed without whatever you're carrying with you on the plane. Um, and that's because that's how they, sh- they should do it that Right, in that's how too. they should do it. I mean, how often do you make the joke, oh, my carry-on should go on Ozempic? <laughs> do you make that joke? You should make that joke. I think I, they would I'm love not, that joke. I'm not sure if that's the crowd, Nadine. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. I I feel like we all need to sort of like recover from this segment um, because a lot of trauma was unleashed by talking about this. So let's take a quick break. Uh, Let's learn about our sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll continue the show. This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by Aura Frames. That is right. Uh, From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an Aura Frame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, wow. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an Aura Frame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little a person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. 
HeadGum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm -hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code HeadGum at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Today's show is sponsored by Prose. This is kind of, I feel like, you know, I'm on some sort of Lord of the Rings journey trying to figure out skincare. And I feel like this customized skincare line is really got my name on it. Basically, every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skincare, I tried the skincare just recently, is made to order and it's personalized. It's got a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs, like specifically you. And then the way they do it is you take this great, like in-depth quiz, basically. They analyze over 80 factors for a complete view of your life, your beauty goals, Um, Like I have oily skin that's also dry, which is just a fun little conundrum. I live in New York City. Like we've got these four seasons. My my face gets weird during seasonal shifts. Um, I all of these things I got to kind of talk about in like in answering the questions. Um, The other fun thing was they asked us at the end, like, do you like a creamy type of moisturizer or like a less creamy kind? And I was kind of like, I think like less creamy. And they were like, that's fine. Like you can do that, but we think for your skin type, creamier is better. And I never knew that. So I love that there's so much kind of personal information that goes into creating this. I got my stuff in the mail very quickly after I got a wonderful serum. Like I said, this very creamy moisturizer. Um, And this also very just delectably creamy cleanser that just kind of feel like I, I think it's possible that I've been washing my face with just like harsh harshness for like many years because when I saw this cleanser I was like oh is this what it's supposed to feel like it's supposed to feel like a little bit of a delight on my face that's not what I've been doing so I don't know guys and here's the thing you don't have to take my word for it in a third-party double-blind dermatologist supervised controlled clinical study um, which is like the gold standard for research studies Pros prove that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives, which just sort of totally makes sense on a just logical level if you think about it. Just it makes common sense. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering my listeners an exclusive trial offer so you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% of your first subscription order at pros.com slash Fake the nation um, will be taken off. That's pros.com slash fake the nation. You get your free consultation and 50% off your one of a kind formulas. Uh, again, that's pros.com slash fake the nation. Go and get your just super personalized, luxurious skincare products and hair care products. That's what I'm going to try next. So pros.com slash fake the nation. And we are back and we're ready for topic number two. Uh, During the pandemic, 
thousands of colleges and universities ditched the SATs. And at the time, it made sense because people didn't go to do testing in person, right? And for years, there was suspicion about the efficacy of such tests in predicting future success. There was concern about it being um, divisive um, and uh, what's the word? Um, in sort of um, unfairly benefiting certain groups and other and not others based on racial lines, based on economic lines. But in recent weeks, Yale and Dartmouth and, and, and before that MIT have announced that they are bringing back the SATs. Now, let's just first talk about your position on the SATs even before the pandemic, before they ditched the SATs. What were your feelings about them? Well, I was diagnosed <clears throat> with a learning disability when I was a kid, and I was a really mm -hmm. bad tester always. Mm -hmm. The college that I got into, which I loved, um, I was their lowest score. So at the time, they gave you... What do you mean? So, How do you know wait, that? So they gave a range of what <laughs> yes, scores were acceptable. Totally. Uh -huh, I was uh -huh. that bottom number. And... <laughs> And That's like being weighed at thin air. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just to say, not you know, I'm not trying to brag here, but I did great at that college. I yeah, I graduated yeah. magna cum laude, right? So like clearly for me, that test was in no way an indicator of my future success. I have read in the past about unbelievably classist and even racist questions that show up on these tests and. Through my own experience, I'm not a fan, but I also think they're such a blunt tool and often um, a politically divisive one uh, to judge human capacity for learning. So um, through my personal experience, absolutely not a fan. Laurel, now you have a maybe have a particular position on this because you you are a uh, you teach at a university. Yes, that is still not requiring the SAT. Um, I'll tell you this. Yeah. I mean, I I agree here. I think that they're deeply, deeply problematic. They are unfair. They have been shown to be racist. Um, it is a blunt tool. Absolutely. It's also cheaper and more accessible to hack your way into a good SAT score than it is to pay someone to make a fake professional athlete thing for you or pay off a crew coach or donate a library. And when we, you know, like <laughs> when we take away the SAT, it's not like all the other privilege went away in the application process. I think some of that gets even more entrenched, honestly, hmm. um, because if you are someone with few resources, you still can often afford maybe a test prep book right? Like it is, it is absolutely an unfair metric, but they all are. So I think, you know, we do need to think long and hard about how we let kids in. And also now that there's such a terrible reaction to affirmative action, um, yes. what are we going to use? Like we need all the tools we possibly can to hold the doors to these hallowed institutions open as wide as possible. So, you know, I'm worried about taking any of them away unless we add something that's more fair and equal. So the interesting thing that Yale and Dartmouth found, um, there was a, basically a study of Harvard economists and they, what was going on was that these universities weren't saying don't submit them. It just made it optional to submit the SATs and the ACTs. 
and what they found was that the test optional practice actually harms students from low income backgrounds because they did not submit the score thinking that if the score wasn't perfect, then they shouldn't submit it. And that ended up like ultimately hurting them. Um, in one study, Dartmouth researchers found that test scores were a better indicator of college performance than grades, essays, or teacher recommendations. Um, and all, all of this for me too, I mean, because I was kind of with you guys where I was like, I felt a certain way about the SATs a, because I had immigrant parents, and B, because I was living in the desert of Southern California. And I remember, you know, seeing an example of a test question that was like about regatta or something. <laughs> right. And I was literally like, what the fuck <laughs> is regatta? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it might not have been regatta, but it was something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so these things were so that, you know, the, especially then, I think probably the 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 test the test is, is a little smarter now than it was then, but it felt really alienating on some of those things. And also like you, Danielle, I mean, I got to look, I got a good enough score that I did go into to an Ivy League school. But like, I also felt like it was my Achilles heel. Like I could I could do perfectly in so many things, right. but I couldn't um, I could not do well, which is which is the other interesting thing that's happening. I think at one of these schools, I think it's at Yale, they're accepting um, if you don't do the SATs, you can submit your AP scores. Now, the AP scores to me is like a different kind of beast because if you're a strong writer it will showcase Correct. that you know what i mean and i again like not as a rag was really good with my ap tests um and so i i can see that like having that like the sat is the creme de la creme of tests feels wrong to me the idea that we should allow other tests to also have that same level of importance like an ap exam feels a little bit better to me and i think like you know the the hacking that you're talking about laurel is like you're you're right it's like the it's it's so much more exp to take the test and maybe even to do like well, as i did I, I remember i took one of these like little seminars it was like a day-long seminar on like how to you know do well on the SAT obviously like my parents had to pay for that and all that stuff so I, I I'm lucky enough that that I could do that but even that was a little bit more again accessible than what you're talking about which is expo these kinds of sports that you have to be involved in which are incredibly expensive you have to travel you have to buy you know costumes you know have to buy costumes <laughs> for sports um you know all of that stuff so I feel like it does make it you know, really difficult. Is there a metric in your, you know, um, Laurel, as 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 a professor that you feel like you wish you knew about your students? Like, is there something that we're like missing entirely when it comes to Yeah, admissions? I think the struggle index, 100%, you know, and I think schools, at, at least mm -hmm. my students would pass with flying colors. Um, I, t I teach at the Stanford Medical School, and it is almost absurd how hard it is to get into that place. And so they can afford, we, we have a lovely director of admissions, and she's amazing. She's single-handedly like changed what the future of medicine looks like um, and changed uh, the entire composition of our incoming class. Huge percentage wow. of students of color now. That wasn't true um, 
seven years ago when I started. And one thing that I know she looks for is students who have faced challenges and live with them. I don't want to say overcome them because I don't think we do that. Um, but people who are resilient um, and who have struggled through or are currently struggling through something um, and are doing okay, who are still able to dream big. And, and I think that's huge. And, and that is something that's really hard to measure on any kind of test. But I think that is the test of life. Um, so in her case, I know, you know, it's, it's in-person interviews. It's just hard. So many schools can't afford to do that. Um, and it's tough. And if you have tens of thousands of applicants, like for one spot, which is now what some of these programs are like, it's, it's too hard to do. But I really do think that's it. You know, we need to look at people who see hard things and say, huh, I, I bet I can do that. Um, I wonder how to do that. That, that's what I look for in an incredible student. Um, and also, you know, friends. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess you have like a really complicated application process to be your friend. <laughs> this is what I'm is like what I'm gathering from that. Yeah, four interviews uh, and uh, a high SAT score. <laughs> All right, folks. Um, let me know what do you think about this trend to maybe go back. By the way, just because these few schools are t- now taking the SATs, that does not mean that several thousand schools are not. I mean, they're they're still not taking them, so um, they're still test optional. So let me know what do you think. Do you have a kid that's going into school? Is this an issue for you? Are you going to submit the score? Are you not going to submit the score? I'm dying to hear from you. Now, let's get into a real quick topic number 2.5. That's right. The irregularly numbered topic number 2.5, because I just wanted to get a quick little dose of politics this week um, as we pour one out for Nikki Haley, who lost again, uh, but this time in her home state of South Carolina. She won 40% of the vote. Uh, But Trump did win all of the other ones. So I just wonder, Danielle, she she's going to stay in the race. She's got another week to to Super Tuesday. And I don't think it's unreasonable to stay in stay in the race. I don't know what what do you think at this point in time just about the the political picture? Well, you'll be shocked to learn, Nagin, that I'm not a Nikki Haley fan. (laughs) Uh Uh, um, But I have to say, actually, and, and she said some things recently that are just ethically repugnant. You know, she she claimed in her in her last speech, she she said a lot of shitty things, true things about Donald Trump. And then she said, but of course, Joe Biden would be more dangerous. Right. So I, I don't trust her to completely be ethical in her public presentation. That said, from what I can see of the right wing infosphere, which obviously I have a very narrow view into because it's not my information bubble. She's the only major Republican voice who is publicly and clearly, and in my opinion, far too late on this, but she's doing it now, actually saying Donald Trump is a bigoted maniac. They don't hear that from people on their side. So there's no chance she's going to win. She's not going to get the nomination. Again, I'm insulted and offended by some of what she says, but I'm still glad she's in the game, actually, because for the Republican audience that she's reaching, she's one of one right now who's willing and able to criticize Trump honestly. I think that's good for democracy in the Republic. I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I know we're going to talk about bravery today, but I think that's, this is proof of it. I agree. I find much of what she says repugnant and horrific, but I also think she is not scared of saying what she thinks and criticizing someone very, very popular in 
inside of her party. And that is so sad that it is so rare. Um, I like Lisa Murkowski from Alaska for the same reason, you know, but there's so, so few Republicans who are willing to come forward. And, you know, they're going home, sitting at dinner and complaining to the people around them, but they're just not brave enough to say it publicly. And so I am I'm super grateful for that. And I hope she stays in until the last damn minute um, or second so we can hear it as much as possible. At least her constituency can hear it for as long as possible. And again, if if Mitt Romney is any uh, reminder to us, he has to spend, oh my God, I can't remember the number, but it's some ridiculous several gajillion dollars a day. I think it's five grand a day. Yeah. on There it is. Yeah. Five grand a day on security um, because he speaks out against Trump, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so it's not, it's not an, um, it is a notable act of bravery, uh, which we will talk about in the next segment. I also want to point out that Biden did win the Michigan primary. Um, his, the final tally is at 81.1%. The people who voted uncommitted, which I believe is the kind of like protest vote from a lot of the Arab Americans in Michigan came in at 13.3%, which, um, I'm not, you know, I don't know how troubling that is for Biden, but I don't know. What Do you have any thoughts on that, Danielle? You know, I think the Biden administration and really the, De- the Democratic Party in general has done a phenomenally terrible job of understanding <laughs> the, the power of the Muslim vote mm-hmm. in this country. Um, it, I think, frankly, they've been surprised that the millions of Muslim families who live in this country and contribute so much don't support killing tens of thousands of Muslims and aiding and abetting that. Um, The fact that that's a surprise, I think, is really disappointing. Um, And from what I've heard, you know, Biden has sent some of his folks to Michigan, where there's a very large Muslim population, and they're saying sorry for their messaging, but they're not changing what they're doing. It's way too little too late. Um, And so I think they really made a problem for themselves. They didn't have to. Um, You know, personally, I absolutely support and want a ceasefire. I think a lot of the left is there. And Biden has not supported that at the level he needs to to guarantee Muslim support. And I get it. Why would you want to vote for someone who's supporting, in my view, a genocide against your people? So the fact that that has caught them off guard, I think, speaks to them really being behind the ball on where the nation is, not only politically, but frankly, demographically. Laurel, do you have any thoughts on uh, Biden's Win, but win with a ca- with the caveat of uncommitted. I, I agree. I think that his his mention of like the word that uh what what was that phrase he said when he was t- he was talking about the genocide? I agree with you. Um, that it's troubling, right? <laughs> we did, need we did, need. <laughs> didn't he say Israel is a little over the top? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, we just we need more than that. We need more than that. Right, and right, clearly, right, right, that thirteen percent right. needs more than that. Yeah. Right? And and I think again, we need a leader who's not scared. I I'm guessing he agrees. Right. Um, we need a yeah. we need a leader who is not scared to say it. Bravery. Yep. Um, and the and the community of nations, by the way, could also use Biden agreeing with them because they mostly agree on that. Um, and it is the United States that tends to be a holdout when it comes to United Nations votes on these issues. All right, folks, let us move on to topic number three. 
So, Laurel, we're going to talk a little bit about your book. Uh, Laurel wrote this wonderful, wonderful book called What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey from Lost to Love. And, um, you know, you it, – it, by the way, it's a beautiful book. I urge everyone to read it, like, today, immediately go to your local bookseller and buy it. Um, and I just want to take a minute to scratch the surface on bravery. First, talk to me about how you came to focus on bravery in writing this book. Like, did that, you know, where did that come from? Well, I think I grew up like a lot of us thinking that bravery went, meant one thing. And and for me, I thought it meant like hurling myself at the world at stuff that scared me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whether that was moving to Alaska and studying grizzly bears um, or I, I thought I <laughs> I wanted to be a fisheries biologist for a while. So I, at like 18, I went to the Amazon by myself and tried to secure grant money and, you know, floated these river boats up and down the Amazon. And, you know, I was, I wasn't even old enough to drink yet. And I, to me, that, that felt like this sort of like Indiana Jones-ish version of bravery, <laughs> you know, like I, I needed a safari hat and a whip and then I was on my way. Um, and I don't know if I got that, you know, from 80s and 90s Hollywood um, or if I got that from children's literature or my family, some mixture. Um, but that's what I thought. And I really kind of hurled myself at, at the world like spaghetti to see if I was brave enough, if I stuck um, for a really long time. And then uh, it, uh, my life kind of fell apart. You know, I, I wouldn't say from the outside. From the outside, it looked like I was doing great. I like uh, I had like Unigine. I, I was a student of the AP exam and and the, and the GRE and the SAT. And I really studied so hard in school and was kind of thriving professionally. But but personally, personally, I was a hot mess. Um, and I began to realize that what scared me most, you know, wasn't, wasn't going off by myself to do things that seemed adventurous and that I had in fact confused adventurous, um, with bravery and being brave and bravery for me ended up being something totally different, which was facing my own difficult feelings like shame and guilt and regret that I had been carrying with me since I was a kid. That's wild. And I think it speaks to a lot of like high performing people mm. because high performing people like don't necessarily have a problem with, you know, a, taking a riverboat down the Amazon, you know, but they but they might have a problem with being vulnerable, <laughs> which I say <laughs> in a voice because I can't do it very well. Right. You can throw me in front of a fucking room of 10,000. I'll do stand up. That's not a big deal. You know what I mean? But like to tell Danielle, like, oh, you mean a lot to me as a friend? Like, I can't, I want to kill myself, right? Like, it's so hard to do that. And so I think, I, I mean, there's that, that, that kind of um, distilling what bravery is to each person, I think, really, really speaks to me. Danielle, what, I mean, listening to that, where, where is your bravery? Well, first of all, I just want to say with a total compliment, to Laurel, you know, what a beautiful book this sounds like. I'm very excited to read it. Um, our definition of adventure, Laurel, is a little bit different. When you were talking <laughs> about what you originally defined as brave, I immediately thought of like being in a public setting where I'm not sure there's a good bathroom. 
Um, <laughs> exactly. I would say for me, that's my Amazon, if if I may. Um, so, so you know, I just I don't really love um physically exerting myself. So I never had that definition of bravery. You know, I guess going back to what we were talking about in admissions and what you'd like to see from students, you know, I think of bravery as being really scared of something close to you and doing it anyway, right? Something that really fundamentally fills you with terror. Um, I have forced Nagin to tell me how she feels about me, so I know <laughs> how painful <laughs> that is for her. I'll never stop making her do it. But, um, you know, for, for me, it's interesting because I'm very much a psychological thinker. I'm a therapy person. Sharing my interior landscape is not particularly challenging. For me, that um, I think Nagin has been a very generous receptacle for many of those comments I've <laughs> I've made over the years. Um, but I will say, you know, bravery is something that I have a hard time owning, even when I've been brave. Mm. You know, um, so for example, you know, I didn't go to film school. I started making films after taking like. And a continuing education class and just having loved cinema all my life. And on that fir first film set, I made a movie that I was proud of. And I was sitting in therapy and my therapist said, this is something brave. You know, you really did something brave. And I found it extremely hard to metabolize or own that idea because, you know, human brains, unfortunately, are designed for comparison. So compared to being on the Amazon in a boat when you aren't old enough to drink, it doesn't sound particularly brave to ask the actress Judy Kuhn for another shot, right? It just doesn't. Right. <laughs> um, I think the challenge for a lot of us is owning and feeling pride comfortably in the bravery in the context of our life versus comparing other lives. Um, that's where it gets tricky for me and I think for a lot of people. Well, you, now you don't need to, to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I wish we'd met sooner. Because uh, literally it took me like 15 years to learn that lesson for myself, maybe longer, right? Which is that like fear is unique to all of us. What makes us anxious, what fills us with dread is unique to all of us. And therefore, too, is what makes us feel brave. And that you can't be courageous or brave if you're not terrified of something. Um, and so we all get a million chances a day, whether it's, you know, using a bathroom in a public place, um, speaking to 5,000 people, or just telling someone you love that you love them, which, Nagin, I'm with you, that is still the worst, <laughs> worst, worst thing. I will do anything. I will do anything. Anything. More, like, falling in love, send, like, adding, adding my husband to my favorites list on my phone. Even that. That's not even communicating. Oh, my God. To him, oh, that he that is sacred me to me. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's my own magical thinking. You know that it invites a disaster, but that—that's—that's that's to me the journey. You know, and and we all come to it with our own stuff. I, I grew up in a household full of loss, and and so it primed me to be even more scared about being vulnerable. Which I wish I could do voices as well as yours, Nikki, because I would never say that word normally. <laughs> Well, I, I also think the interesting thing, like Danielle, off of your point, which is, is that thing of like bravery is also sometimes like this accolade that we give to people. And, I, you know, like, 
I, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm fixing to to do a new, another project, which will put me in the crosshairs of like the, you know, of conservatives, but also whatever the left and basically everyone. And, and I was talking to friends about it and they were like, wow, that sounds really scary. You're really brave. And I was like, no, I'm not. Get the fuck out of here. Like also just like that. I sort of like think of bravery as like it belongs to Indiana Jones. It doesn't belong to me. Right. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. Like what, what could little old me with my lipstick and my red glasses be doing with <laughs> bravery that doesn't make any sense um and so it is also something that i've been unable to own as like as the accolade whatever that people want to bestow um laurel you know i i actually um you know read a, a piece where you sort of summarize some of the key takeaways in your book and one of them was really striking to me and it was about guilt and you write that guilt is only helpful once. Can you explain that? Sure. I wish this was my own insight I could claim, but I was merely a reporter. Um, this comes <laughs> from like the most badass birder I've ever met. She um, is in her late 60s or so, and she lives in the Aleutian Islands in the middle of the Bering Sea. And um, her husband died, and she continued to go out on her boat to their fishing cabin um, that's off the grid by herself for days at a time. One time she got stuck there, had to walk like 20 miles over land back to town. Um, and, you know, I was telling her, like, you know, how brave I thought she was and everything else. And I just love getting her wisdom. And um, I, I was asking if she had any regrets around her life or the end of the life of her husband, because I have had lots of regrets um, about the deaths of people close to me. Did I do it wrong? Did I say the goodbye right? Was I late? All of these different things. And she could see I was really suffering. And she said, you know, Laurel, I, I, I think guilt is, is only helpful once in the very first moment that you have it, where you say to yourself, huh, I wish I had done that differently. Next time I should do that differently. And then after that, you should let go of it. Um, let it teach you Wild, the yeah. lesson once after that, you're just using it to bludgeon yourself. Right. So you're saying though, cause my method is usually like d experience guilt once plus 300 additional right. times. That's usually yep. my general yep, mode. And you're saying that's, that calculation is incorrect. Yes. I mean, I, do I do that? No. <laughs> do, do I aspire to that? Absolutely. You know, I yeah. just, I think it's so wise. Guilt is a tool. Guilt is a teacher. It is not a state in which we should live. Oh, that blows my mind. Can I just say something I'm observing? Like with the two of you citing Indiana Jones as sort of our collective, it's really clear when we were born, ladies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with, the, with the two of you citing Indiana Jones as sort of this, you know, more general idea of bravery, and that being about physical action and, you know, physical, you know, lack of fear. I'm really struck at how gendered this conversation feels yes. to me. Because mm. our definition of bravery classically is frankly about classically male behavior we've seen on screen, right? Well, at least as kids of the 80s, who we saw on screen being brave was certainly men, much more so than women, in physical, adventurous mm. ways. This is a, we're talking here about interior bravery. So it also strikes me that it's not only that I love the, the redefining you're doing, Laurel, I do, but also it seems to me that it's a much more encompassing, comprehensive definition for folks who might not have any physical, you know, adventurousness, speaking for a friend, right? Um, <laughs> right. Uh, so I also love that, that we're shifting from something that feels really classically masculine 
and we're shifting it towards something that really can work for anybody. I think that's powerful. Agree. And I think we should also use it to reevaluate history. Like if you go into a bookstore now, often if you look at like the, you know, the sort of coffee table or like gifty book version of like brave women in history, right? It's the women who did the big firsts. Um, right. Which is great. Like, I don't want to take away anything from the first female astronauts or Amelia Earhart or any anyone who, like, did a thing. You know what I mean? Like, that it is hard. Yeah. It was brave. But also, we should have so many more of those books. Um, and, and, I, and, and they should feature all kinds of people. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. It's a gender, it's a gendered paradigm. Um, that needs yeah. to be undone. And it's funny to like that, like, you know, someone like Indiana Jones, this fucking fictional character, um, is so lodged in my brain in that way. Cause, like, you know, I could have also said, like, Aaron Brockovich or something, right? Um, but that's not necessarily like the thing that we've as- ascribed as being brave, even though that was brave. You know, her story is I- I- incredibly brave. Um, I was more of a crocodile Dundee person myself, (laughs) but, you know, to each their own. (laughs) Um, Laurel, are there any final thoughts you want listeners to leave listeners with about bravery? Oh, uh, you know, they have it already. I think that's the other thing I wish I could go back in time and tell my younger self. Like, why did I think I had so much to prove? You know, Mm. like it's not something we need to go test out in the world. It's really not. Um, I I think that that is such an important thing. I wish we can all internalize. That was beautiful. And folks, that is the end of the show. And oh, my God, how much do I love potting with the two of you? I love it so much. And what I want is for the people of Faith the Nation to be able to find you and all the works that you do. Danielle, where do they do that? Um, wonderful to be here as always, Nagin. You can find me at DanielleDirschlog.com. And I'm also on Instagram occasionally um, at, and I'm at ddurch, D-D-U-R-C-H. Follow her. Uh, she's got incredible images. I mean, really, in, in, she, she does incredible art. You should follow everything that she does. And Laurel, where do people find you? At laurelbraitman.com. And they can find me on Instagram. It's pretty much the only social media I do now. Laurel underscore Braitman, B-R-A-I-T-M-A-N. And can you remind us of the name of your book? Absolutely. What Looks Like Bravery, um, An Epic Journey from Loss to Love. And uh, it's everywhere books are sold. And, And I did the audiobook. Hey! Uh, yeah. so not not as sexily as you would have done, <laughs> but I did do it. 
All right, that is the end of the show. I want to thank everyone um, who makes the show possibility. Um, that's our wonderful uh, producer, Andrew McGuire. Thanks to everyone at HeadGum for, for making the show happen. Thanks to Gabby Alter for our theme music. If you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at fakethenationpodcast at gmail.com. Um, as David did, our listener last week. By the way, David, your message has gotten me so many messages of people like really enjoying that discussion. So thank you so much. And if any of you have any thoughts like David's, I am here for you um reach out and um otherwise oh just a quick reminder to rate and review the show we're coming up on 400 episodes of this ridiculous show so if you have a friend that does not subscribe to fake the nation tell your friend grab their phone from them and subscribe make it happen let people know um like us review us on all on any of the platforms where you get your podcast because it really helps this show that is going to be 400 episodes old very very soon um so uh thanks everybody and we will be back in your earballs next week That was a HeadGum Podcast.